Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. And this is Praz the Sandman, guiding your mind through the journey of surgery over the radio waves. You know, we've spent the better part of this year covering a lot of medicine, Praz. Which is always nice to do to, to educate people, but it's good to take a break once in a while, right? We figured this week we would actually dedicate this episode to travel tips. Now, all of us have managed to travel pretty extensively and picked up little tips and tricks along the way. So we've decided to collect them into this spring break episode for you. So if you have any vacations coming up yourselves, maybe you can get some use out of this and then go back to listening to your regularly scheduled medical history and news. Yeah, the only thing going wild in this spring break episode is our travel tips. Woo! <laughs> Let me flash my knowledge. There you go. Oh, too hot for radio. Let's get started by talking about the different stages of, of planning travel. The easiest one is, how do you pick where to go? Do you have a big old checklist of destinations? Do you spin a globe and throw darts? It's interesting you mention this. There is always a dilemma that we have. There's a lot of places that we've been to that we've really enjoyed that we always want to go back to. But I think, at least for me and my wife, we always sort of decide that we'd rather just see a completely new place rather than re-explore an old place in more detail, just so we get to spread our bases and cover most of the world. I do have some a general idea of places that I like to visit more so than others, um, because it's two of us traveling together. It's more of a collaborative effort. Try to see what appeals to us, what time of year is right, and go from there. So what time of year do you prefer to travel? Are you a summer traveler and getting away for those spring breaks and summer vacations? Or do you try and get away for the winter? I think getting away from the winter, especially since I live in a city that got almost 200 inches of snow, possibly more, this past winter. Definitely escaping during the cold months is something that I really look forward to. And going to someplace warm, like I was just in the Philippines, and then I had gone to California, and I'm a winter traveler. Yeah, I like to mix it up throughout the year because I like seeing the different seasons and all the places that I've gone. Uh, Some places are just absolutely gorgeous during the winter themselves. And by I feel like by only traveling away from one season, I, I really deprive myself. Well, that's very reasonable too. Some areas of the world are much nicer in the winter months versus the summer months. And, you know, it makes sense to take advantage of that. And also nobody visits me in Chicago in the winter and I just can't imagine why. <laughs> why not? You don't get any snow. <laughs> yes. 
super warm here. It's great. No, really. But once you pick a place, the next step, of course, is to book your flight. And whether you're going domestic, you know, international, booking is the next big tip. So what sites do you like to use for booking? I go to kayak a lot as a general play idea, especially for my international trips. If I'm going domestic, I'll usually just book on Southwest because they have a lot of good flight deals and whatnot. But those are really my main two um, go-to sites. I will check on Kayak. I also used to go to Faircast, and that would give... uh, I think they've since turned into a website called Crunchbase. They were a company that sort of predicted when airfare prices would go up. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but I feel like a lot of the time when I was looking for flights, I would look for a flight online, I'd compare prices, and then I would go back to the original site only to find that the flight price increased like 100% of the time. I would look, I would leave, I'd come back the next day, skyrocketed. Has that been your experience? Um. With those two sites, it hasn't been, but I've been to sites where that's done that a lot. I noticed that a lot on Orbitz and some of the other places that I used to try. So I definitely get what you're saying. So I found a way to get around that. And it also kind of leads me into something that I really feel like everyone should be using. And and I may go a little bit off on a tangent for net neutrality here. So you just redirect me if I start going off the rails. Sure. Um. And one of the things I encourage everyone to do just all the time, but especially for travel, is to use a VPN. And using a VPN can actually help you get cheaper flight tickets. Wow. How does that work, Josh? Well, do you know what a VPN is to start? Okay, so VPN stands for Virtual Private Network. But my understanding of it is that it basically conceals the source of your computer to um, third parties and whatnot. So basically you could be typing at your home in Chicago or Pennsylvania or wherever, but with the VPN turned on, the websites that you're visiting or any other hackers or whatnot, for all they know, you could be typing everything from the middle of Europe or Africa or pretty much anywhere in the world. Think of it this way. If you imagine the internet as a as a river. When you are on the internet, you've basically dropped a whole bunch of dye into the river. That's your unencrypted data. So anyone standing along the riverbank can see that dye, what color and consistency it is, where it ends up, where it's going. That's, you know, all your information. You're searching for flights, you're visiting Facebook, you're researching travel things, and they all know where it started from, and they can adjust accordingly. So some flights, uh, some airlines will charge more based on what country you're coming from. So if you're flying to Australia, for example, and you're flying from the US, it'll cost more than if you're flying back home to Australia and you're booking the flight from Australia. Why? Because, you know, they show preference to their own domestic airlines. Now, a VPN works like this. Imagine that instead of just dumping all your data into the river at one point, you put a small pipe in the river running from wherever you are to some random other point and you tip your die into the pipe. Until it comes out the end, nobody on the bank can see the die or know anything about it. That's what a VPN is. It keeps you protected and lets you decide where to pop up and start sharing. So you can make the internet think that you started from a totally different destination, and therefore a lot of your data is protected. Hmm. Interesting. Although I'm curious, for the purpose of flight specifically, 
I mean, you could sure do a VPN saying you're in Australia and possibly get cheaper flights, but when they see that you're booking a flight originating from LA and flying to Australia and back, wouldn't they figure it out? So here's where it comes in handy for booking flights with a VPN. If you're searching from, you know, your own ISP and you're looking for a flight to go to, as we said, let's say you're going to Australia, you look at the flight maybe four or five months ahead of time. And Kayak, if you remember, asks, would you like us to save this flight? Remember it for next time in case prices drop. But now they've already established that based on your data, your your ISP, your spending habits, they know that you're already interested in that. So the next time you look back, the flights based on your own preferences may have been adjusted. If they see a lot of people start looking, they're going to increase those prices ever so slightly, maybe only like a few dollars, but it goes up. However, if you look up the the original flight on one server, your home ISP, and then you turn your VPN on, it thinks you're two different people. So Mm. you get to start right at that ground level again, even if you've already looked at several other flights or countries you want to visit. You know, do a little bit of your homework, try browsing around, but a VPN is absolutely crucial in booking. And that's separate from protecting your data. That can actually help save you some money. Another thing that comes up is just like when you land in a new country and you have to watch out for pickpockets who want to steal your material goods. There's a lot of people who I'm sure use the public Wi-Fi at an airport or at a coffee shop or at an internet cafe or any of those just to be like, oh, let me hop onto the Wi-Fi. I'll check my email. I'll check my finances. Well, there's digital online pickpockets as well. And if you're using unsecured or unencrypted data, those digital pickpockets can come in, swoop off and grab your credit card numbers, grab your personal information. So how do you prevent that? Well, if they think you're somewhere else in the world, it's very hard to grab them if if they don't know where you are, right? Exactly. So a VPN also will once again protect your data. So if you're going to be online and you want to use some kind of public Wi-Fi, you can use a VPN to encrypt your data. So those digital pickpockets basically are trying to get into now a zippered pocket. It's a much narrower, narrower window for them to reach in and grab that important private data. So that's two ways already that a VPN is protecting you. How do you get a VPN? And there's a lot of different services. Most of them charge you by the year. And there's a couple that are better than others. And certainly not every VPN is created equal. But you do your research and then you just download it directly onto either your computer or your phone or your iPad. It can run as an app and you turn it on or off when you need it. So for example, if I'm watching Netflix, I'm not particularly concerned with a bunch of people maybe knowing what I'm watching. That's that's not a level where I concern myself with privacy. So I'll leave my VPN off. But if I am in some other country and I want to check my bank account, then I absolutely turn that VPN on. So it's not something that's always on, although you really should have it, but it's certainly something you have control over. And I use ExpressVPN. They're one of the better ones out there, but they're not the only one. So, you know, search around and find one that you like that works for you. Okay. Some browsers have uh, VPNs built in them too, like the Opera browser, right? So that's actually an interesting point. Opera's VPN is actually just a proxy server. 
Good to know. My my first travel tip is get yourself a VPN because it is fantastic. It's cheap. It's easy. It means you can use public Wi-Fi on your own computer or phone for secure transactions like booking hotels, banking, choosing flights, all of those sorts of things. And really, I would use it all yeah, the time. I second that. I fully travel. endorse VPN use as well for that reason. Once you've booked the flight, now what? Now, I don't know about you, but personally, for me, I'm very comfortable flying and so comfortable, in fact, that uh, when the <laughs> wheels go up, I go out. I fall asleep almost immediately into every flight, which means a 10-hour flight for me is closer to a two-hour because I'm just blatantly <laughs> nice. unconscious. It is. It can be very easy for some people to fall asleep on planes, but I think a lot of us would have a lot more trouble with that. You've dealt with jet lag before, right, Josh? Sometimes it feels like I'm yeah. living in a perpetual state of jet lag, but... I find that for me, resetting my internal stomach clock is the fastest way to reset the rest of my body clock. So I always try and eat whatever the local meal time is. If I land, you know, in the morning, I'll eat a breakfast. If I land late at night, I go for a dinner or a midnight snack. And once my stomach knows what's what, the rest of my body falls into line. Being in a perpetual state of jet lag is something that a lot of people in healthcare had to deal with, with the late hours and the midnight shifts and whatnot. I've been um, having some issues with jet lag over the years, and I've been trying to figure out uh, the best way to deal with it. And we all have our strategies. Basically, I think I've started to come up with a way that works for me, at least. So just as a little background for everybody, jet lag is basically the concept where our bodies have a circadian rhythm, is what we call it. It's our body clock that sort of guides us through the day. It's the reason why we fall sleepy when nighttime comes several hours after sunset and the reason why we hopefully get more awake when the sun rises and starts and while we feel hungry at certain times of days or sleepy and whatnot. The issue is that the circadian rhythm is determined by the location that we're at and that we're living at for some time. But when we travel and we go, I don't know, several time zones in either direction, the time at our destination doesn't always um, coincide with our own bodily rhythms and that can be very uncomfortable because it could be the middle of the night and you'd be wide awake or it could be broad daylight and you'd be ready to fall asleep. Um, and that can certainly make travel a lot more frustrating. What I've started to find is that adjusting a jet lag and adjusting a circadian rhythm um, generally starts when you're on the plane. I found that in the plane, the circadian rhythm tends to be fairly neutral, right? Because there isn't always like clear like day or night hours. The plane usually has a pretty constant set of lights. Um, a lot of times you're flying, it may be nighttime the whole time or daytime the whole time. What I started doing was trying to force myself to stay awake during my nighttime hours and to fall asleep when, not when it's, when I'm used to sleeping, but rather whenever it's time to sleep at my destination. So if it's like 6 a.m. in Japan, but I don't know, 7 p.m. In America, I might start to get tired, but I try to push through it as far as I could so I could try to fall asleep on Japanese time. I find that that helps. I have heard that technique certainly used a lot. Um, one of the other things I thought was fascinating, and I'm going to nerd out a little bit here. Big shock <laughs> no, to everybody you. I know. I really like kind of learning about flights and flight numbers. So I love learning the stories of airline designations, those three-letter codes for every airline. But 
Also, the flight numbers themselves have meaning. And have you ever wondered why when you take a flight, you know, it'll be United Flight 2430 or Qantas Flight 6 or Spirit Airlines Flight 7248? Honestly, I haven't thought too much about it, I'm certainly very curious now. I might be the only person staring, being like, why do they give them these numbers? Because it's not an order. It's not how many flights they make a day. So there's a number of different conventions for developing flight numbers. And of course, they vary from airline to airline. But in general, a few rules of thumb is that flights that go east and north are usually assigned even numbers, while flights that go west or south have odd numbers. So you can already, just from looking at the number of the flight, know what direction you're going to be flying. Good for those of you who don't have a great sense of direction or want to learn a little bit more about geography. So with that being Um, the case, let's say you have a um, flight that flies from New York to Chicago and then from Chicago to Tampa, going in very different directions. Um, Is the number of the flight then reflective of the original trajectory or the... Well, that brings up another interesting point. Now, this also changes airline to airline because some will use an odd number for an outbound flight and then the next even Hmm. number up for the reverse inbound flight. Destinations that are served by multiple flights per day, numbers will tend to increase. So a flight from point A to point B might be 101 and then the return flight would be 102 while the next pair to that same destination would be 103 and 104. As they move from different layovers. Not always necessarily the different layovers, but the full, you know, start start and end point, discounting any stops in between. Now, that's kind of the odd and even designation. But what about numbers, like how high the number is? Well, basically, the lower the number, the more common or popular or fancy that flight is going to be. With the flight numbers of less than three digits, usually assigned to premium flights, with the Mm -hmm. lowest number being the number for the flagship flight. So for example, Qantas flight number one is the kangaroo route from Sydney to Dubai to London. Like that was the very first kind of fancy flight that they chose. United Airlines Flight 1 is the daily flight from San Francisco to Singapore. It's like a very premium service and really the only ones that they do. And they tend to be more business class. Now, if you have – most of us are going to fly things in like the four-digit numbers, so ranging from 3,000 to 6,000. And those tend to be regional flights. So if you're flying New York to San Francisco, that's probably going to be a four-digit number flight, 2548, 1562. Uh, something like that. Whereas numbers that are larger than 6,000 are usually code share numbers. So if it's a flight operated by two different airlines, meaning maybe you're going to take a layover and fly the first part on Alaska Airlines and the second on American Eagle. So two different airlines okay. is going to be a number greater than 6,000. Flight numbers larger than 9,000 are ferry flights. They don't carry passengers, and they're really just used for maintenance. So (laughs) if you're on a flight marked 9,000, you're cargo. I have a feeling some people will like to travel as cargo anyway. But next time you're in an airport, take a look at your flight number and see how much you can deduce based on how popular that route is, what direction you're going, 
and how many stops you're likely to make along oh, the way can all be know. figured out just from looking think about at the it a little bit more next time I see. That's interesting. Of course, there's a similar one of these for highways, which admittedly my my father taught me when I was very young. And without going into, if you know, some of you like taking road trips, you may not always be flying, and we'll we'll circle back around to planes in a moment. But the highway system is a little bit similar, but just different enough from flights to make it confusing. So when you're looking at interstate highways, mm-hmm. east-west highways are assigned even numbers, and north-south highways are assigned odd numbers. And they're looking at that, as, you know, kind of the overall shape of the, or the overall direction of the highway. So that's why 9094 in the Midwest, even though there are times when it absolutely goes north-south, it's still even because overall it's an east-west running highway. Same as the 10 East, just like the 101 in mm. California and the 405 okay. both run north-south. So, so that explains the numbers of the highways. What about the different interstates versus expressways versus... Intrastate highways have their own numbering system. And honestly, sure. that got a little bit too confusing even for me. So I stick mostly to interstate. And it also holds true when you look at double digits tend to go through a city while triple digits huh. tend to go around the edges of a city. Like a lot of triple digit ones won't take you straight through downtown, whereas double digits okay. will usually give you the option you ever see any to get off there. triple digit interstates? That is an excellent question. And there are a few three digit interstate highways and they mostly serve like heavy urban areas and they'll give you a single digit in front of the regular two-digit number of the parent interstate highway. So if you think, again, going back to California, the 210 uh, through Pasadena is a spring-off of the 10. So the 10 highway is going around the city, but the 210 is an interstate that will pass through it, but it's an offshoot, and it will eventually link up. So all the highways Mm. that are offshoots of the 10 will eventually rejoin it. The 210, the 110, the 310... You know, if you get lost on the highway system, you can always circle back around and know that you will hit that parent number. So the 405, the 105, all of those will connect to the 5, the 210, the 310, the 110, all of them will connect to the 10. And even though I'm using California highways, the same general numbering classification applies to all interstate highways throughout the U.S. That's another thing I'll need to start noticing a little bit more as I go through. When you think about that, it becomes a lot harder to get lost. Although I admit I'm a bit of a dinosaur when it comes to these things because now everybody can just look at their GPS. But God forbid your phone dies or you're in an area with no Wi-Fi. At least now you know how to get from airport to airport Absolutely. or around. And it's important these days. Road. Some people forget um, the basics of traveling and trying to find themselves out of the way. And especially in emptier areas, it's a good skill to have. Let's dive back in very briefly to at least a little bit of science and medicine. Pros, are you a window or an aisle seat guy? Or are you the usual, I didn't book early enough or I was too cheap, so uh-huh. I'm going to be stuck in a middle seat between Sneezy McSneezerson and well, I've definitely been you there know, and, uh, Sweaty McBody. instances, but in the event that I do book early enough, I tend to prefer sitting in the aisle, personally. I know and you guys can't that? see me through the radio waves, but I'm a pretty tall guy. I'd say above average. I primarily do it for the leg room, um, especially if 
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. If I can stick my legs into the aisle a little bit, it makes me more comfortable, and it allows me more freedom and accessibility to get around when needed. I have to say, as I've gotten older, I do tend to go for the aisle more because I like stretching out a bit. And I also want to be able to get up and walk around on some of those longer flights. That's That's how you can help prevent those deep vein thrombosis or blood clots in the legs. But a new study that's come out, although small, may be significant in that they're saying people who choose window seats are less likely to get sick on flights. Now, this was done through mathematical modeling and computer simulations. They didn't just send somebody with the flu onto a flight and Are you sure? Because I've sat next to that guy on several occasions. But there wasn't a scientist (laughs) behind him. The researchers used mathematical modeling to determine how likely people were to come close to a hypothetical infectious passenger sitting if they were sitting in an aisle seat the if the infected passenger was sitting in an aisle seat on the 14th row of a single aisle airplane so kind of most of our regional flights and to be fair from this study they looked at based on these fictional sims on average only about one person to two people on a flight of 150 passengers would be infected. But they were also looking at viral illnesses, not ones that are highly contagious. And they said it would be difficult to use this small study to make general conclusions Mm -hmm. about the risks of a passenger getting a cold or flu. But what they found based on this modeling is that about 38% of passengers on a plane never leave their seat. They sit down and they stay there the whole time. That tends to be people like me, largely because I'm unconscious. And I really hope that my you know, fellow seatmates, if I've chosen an aisle, don't need to hop up to go to the bathroom are? all the time. Maybe you mentioned it. Well, they looked okay. at several different studies, but they were looking at an average four-hour flight because a three to five, three to five hours is the length of most of the domestic flights okay. in the U.S. Right. that are business class. About 38% of people never left their seat. left their seat once, 13% left twice, and 11% left more than twice. Those are clearly the people with small children or tiny bladders or both. About 80% of people sitting on the aisle moved at least once during their flight compared with 62% in the middle and 43% in the window. And the 11 people sitting closest to a person with a cold or flu or an infection are at the highest risk. So that means the two people to their left, the two to their right, and the people in the row immediately in front of them and the row behind. Mm. So it's a tiny so little Sudoku puzzle around. of infection. So if you hear somebody coughing immediately in front of or behind you, uh, yeah, you know, 
go for the window seat, I guess. You can't really change once you're on the plane, but it's something to keep in mind as you're using your VPN to book and looking yes, at the flight number to see how long you're going to be in contact. And transitions here. I love it. Um, mixing it all in together for a better flight experience. That's kind of some of the statistics and, and technical things, but let's have some fun now. Once you're <laughs> in a foreign country, Praz, what do you like to do? Are you more, do you shop? Do you sit by the beach? Do you explore museums? Do you eat the local food? I mean, obviously, if you're on vacation, you're going to want to do all those things. But personally, for me, especially really if I'm trying to, to get away from the 20 feet of snow we've gotten, I'm very much of a relax on the beach type of guy. I have a few drinks, eat some nice food, enjoy the scenery and the sunset and whatnot. Um, and I'm all up for exploring, but I'm definitely more of a, a relaxer. See, I like getting into the local markets, talking to people and, you know, stuffing sure. my face because I told you I reset my internal clock with my stomach. But one of my favorite things to do, especially in countries Ooh, yes. where I can get away with it, very is haggling. Impressive skill to have. And it's one that can certainly intimidate a lot of people. I mean, there's some people out there who love it. They like arguing <laughs> for the sake of arguing. Arguing. They like arguing for the sake of that's, that's when you're arguing and haggling. You're arguing. Let me argue with you. Some people love doing it. Others are terrified and they just, you know, just shut yeah. up and take my money and leave me alone. I'd say initially when I first um, was traveling, I definitely was quite uncomfortable with the concept of haggling, especially since a lot of the hagglers were very aggressive. The more I started to observe it and the more I got along... And depending on the environment I was in, because not all hagglers are going to be very aggressive, um, I started to get a little bit more comfortable with it. And Do you have any tips or tricks that you have found that seem to help you? Because I've okay. definitely got a couple I've um, picked up over the years. Well, first and foremost, um, this may seem a bit obvious, but knowing the native language definitely helps. I speak Spanish, and in countries that are Spanish-speaking, I tend to do better in haggling versus countries where I'm not quite sure what they're doing or not as familiar with culturally. So let me tell you a few things that I've learned that make haggling... Well, fun as well and gives you a chance. And this is not like how to rip off the other person. It's how to just feel more comfortable getting into the game, getting into the enjoyment of it. First and foremost, uh, you know, you have to know where you can haggle. And you can haggle in places you may not always think that you are going to be able to. Like certainly in a flea market, it's expected that you're going to haggle or a local craft market. Um, you know, it's it's kind of understood. Whereas if you go into a big department store in, say, downtown Tokyo, people are going to be less inclined to haggle. But that doesn't mean you can't. The most important thing to keep in mind is if the person you're talking to has the authority to change the That's price, you can That's a very important thing to you say. If haggle. you talk to just some local, um, just one of the smaller like salespeople there, they probably aren't going to be able to get you very much. Yeah, but if you're in like a mom and pop store, or even if you're in a big box store and you can speak to a manager to talk to say unboxed or damaged items. If the person you're talking to has the authority, you are well within your rights to go ahead and haggle. Now that doesn't mean you should, you know, immediately jump straight to offering, you know, two cents on the dollar for whatever it is you want, but it means that you can get into a little bit of a back and forth with the person. And that sort of leads into my next tip. Strike up a conversation, create a personal 
relationship rather than just a purely transactional. When you go into a store, don't just immediately hold up a thing and say, you know, how much will you give me for this? Or what's the best deal? You know, sit there, talk to the person, be like, you know, hey, it's my first time in this country. Uh, What's your favorite restaurant? Or, you know, what do you think of these? I'm looking for a gift for so-and-so. Would this be like a good craft? Yeah, obviously the salesperson wants to sell you something. But if you start approaching them as just a fellow human being and make a little bit of conversation and small talk, they're going to be that much better disposed toward you and more willing to offer you a deal rather than if you walk in and just start saying, well, (laughs) you here, servant, give me this price. And in general, I've noticed if you come across as being personable, you can certainly get away with a lot more than you would otherwise. And haggling certainly is no exception. Also, don't negotiate if the price is way too cheap. I mean, keep in mind where you are. Uh, when I was in Papua New Guinea last year, I saw a fantastic tiki mask, which I loved to death. And I knew that I was just going to shut up and give them my money. And I wanted to haggle a little bit to have fun. And the initial price, you know, I could do the conversions. But once I did, I found out that realistically, I was arguing to get something from $5 US down to like, three dollars us and i'm like you know what oh yeah i pay five dollars for a burger i'm not gonna fight tooth and nail because at the end of the day what's the worst that happens you end up with something that has meaning to you that you have a memory attached to and maybe you overpaid a little for which leads us into know what you actually want don't just you know (laughs) argle for the sake of argling Make sure that you actually are walking in and decide, I am willing to walk away without this, or I actually genuinely want this. Actually, there's a trick to that in pricing, especially Hmm. when you're in stores that put sticker prices on things. Um, And that's known as left-digit bias. And it's an effect that's known throughout the world, and it reflects how the leftmost digit of a price will disproportionately affect our perception. For example, if you see something for $1.99, you're much more likely to buy it than if it's labeled $2. Even though there's only a one-cent difference, your brain looks at the leftmost digit and only reads that. So they see one is less than two, that's the cheaper one. So they could put the exact same thing priced $1.99 and $2.203 right there next to each other and Nine out of ten people are going to buy the one ninety nine one because you know, they see it always, one. I always used to wonder as a kid that. why they always charted something as ninety nine, like four ninety nine, nineteen ninety nine, etc. And now it makes sense. Like it, it's actually true, and it works, and it's been shown to work. Yeah, because nineteen ninety nine is still cheaper than twenty four dollars, which, in the grand scheme of things, not a huge difference, but mentally, you've already shifted to thinking, oh, mm. something that's nineteen ninety nine is in the teens. I'll be honest, that's a really hard habit to break, even when you know about it. It's still something that you'll find yourself falling into. But try and be aware. So when you're haggling, a couple of the tips that I have found to be fantastically useful. One is known as price anchoring. A lot of times, When you're haggling, people tend to walk up and ask, how much is this? Or what would you give me for this? Or like, what, what would, what do you want for this? And that's actually already putting you at a slightly weaker position because when you're price anchoring, the very first number that gets thrown out, 
That's what's held in everyone's head for negotiating, which means the advantage to the first person is to suggest a price for unmarked objects. So if you see a nice sweater and you decide you're willing to pay, mm-hmm. I don't know, 20 bucks for it, you know, the shop owner wants to get a hundred bucks for it. If you walk up and you ask them, how much is this? And they tell you, oh, that's 50. Well, now if you come back with 20, you're going to look like you're either severely undercutting because it's already anchored. So when you guys are haggling, you're going to end up trying to meet somewhere below that initial offer that they put out. Whereas if you come up first and say, hey, I'll give you $20 for this sweater. Now, if the shop owner comes back and says, no, 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 I couldn't possibly, uh, I'll take, you know, that sweater is at least $30. You're already that much closer to your starting point. Whereas if they come back and say, that's a hundred bucks, it's going to be way easier for you to walk away and be like, nope, this is not going to fly. And then they will come down much more rapidly. So the first person to throw a price out is way more likely to get it. Now, again, this also means you have to have a better idea of what a thing's value is. So if you want to kind of look around at places where there is a sticker value, don't walk up, see, you know, a motorcycle and say, I'll give you $5 for that. That's not going to price anchor to anything. So it has to be at least within the ballpark value, but throwing out the first price gives you a much better negotiating handle. But it does require a lot of research, right? Well, it requires a lot of research for big purchases like cars or fancy clothes. It requires a lot less for little mini souvenirs like knickknacks, trinkets, statues, things like that. You know, you don't have to know the price of a little statuette. If you think like, oh, well, what would I pay? You have to know your top dollar amount. If you look at a little statue and say the most I would pay for that is 10 bucks, then you can walk out and say, I'll give you five bucks. And if they say 30, you can be like, I'll tell you what. I'll come up to 10. And if they're unwilling to budge, then you may have misjudged the value. And then you can reassess whether or not you're willing to do it. But if you know your top dollar amount going in, it makes it a lot easier for you to price anchor. Another one is we're very much a credit-based society, but cash in the face is a huge deal. So don't just ask if the person will take $20. Take a $20 bill out and ask, will you take $20 for this? And that's also stated as a fact. I can give you $4 or how about $4 for this bowl as opposed to would it be okay? Because again, if you're coming out, you don't have to be aggressive. You don't have to be a jerk about it. But if you make it more as a statement, you really already put them into your frame of mind. So take a $20 bill Mm. out and say, would you take 20 for this scarf? Because now, well, they want to make a sale. And if the money's already in their face, it's that much harder to walk away and say, well, I want 50, but the 20's right here. Whereas with a credit card, it's all invisible money that nobody actually sees. And they're going to be big less bill likely in your face to has go a back lot and of, forth um, A lot of uh, persuasion power. This kind of reminds mm-hmm. me of one of my travel stories when I was in Nepal with our, our travel friend, Ko. Uh, One of the things I wanted to pick up was a singing bowl. It's a little meditation bowl that you have a mortar and pestle. And as you rub the mortar around the edge, it creates a tone. I had no clue what these things cost. They looked like they were about 20 bucks to me. So I walk in and I start, you know, talking with the guy about like, what are these singing bowls used for? And we're chatting and we're having kind of a good time. And then we get into going Hmm. back and forth where I make him an offer. And we started having fun teasing each other. And, you know, 
you have to be able to read the room. But the guy went back and told me, he's like, look, if I give you this price, if I give you the price that you're offering for this bowl, I'm not going to be able to feed my children today. Sure. And, you know, he's sitting there arguing, but he's not actually like angry about it. So I come back and I'm like, well, listen, if I pay the price you're asking, I'm not going to be able to afford to have children. And then, of course, our, our good friend, Co walks in, sees the bowl, and he goes, oh, that, oh hey, that's sure that, that thing you really cool. wanted. Just undercuts me completely. And he looks at he picks it up, and he looks at the guy. He's like, so – and because Co wanted to do a little bit of the art of the deal, too. So he starts looking. He's like, so uh, what else can you use this for besides singing? Can you eat cereal out of it? And, and the shopkeeper looks at me and goes, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Anything you like, buddy. Keep those tips in mind, and it'll make you overall a much better bargainer. The last of the things I think I want to talk about, or the next thing I'd I want to talk about, my is sense a little bit navigating. Reasonable. Would you say you have a pretty good Not sense the of best, direction? But I us? think I could survive to some degree. I find myself constantly helping other family members and friends to navigate for things that, to me, seem like they should be second nature, such as you know, sun rises in the east sets in the west. So if you're not sure which direction you go, look where the sun is. Or if you're in California, I tell my my brother sometimes when he calls, oh, if you're not sure which way is west, just head towards the beach. And he'll come back. He's like, I'm downtown. There's no beaches anywhere within my line of sight that is not helpful information. I'm going to share at least one or two different tips that might make it a little bit easier. Now, um, well, do you know any so navigation tips for how I to get to around? I try to do what I can with, I try to figure out landmarks, sort of like what you were suggesting. Aside from looking at the direction of the sun, which I'm not the best at, I try to remember where the lake may be or where the beach may be, where downtown is, and and try to get an idea of what roads lead there and what roads go away from there. And I... Um, Basically, try to figure my way out as best as I can from there. Uh, it's much easier when you have like a reasonably um, like organized city or area, but it can certainly be harder in places like woods or anywhere else. One of the things that I'm going to tell you can do, and this only works obviously at certain time of year, hmm. is you can use the moon to find, uh, but it has to be the crescent moon to figure out south or north. So we already know you can go east or west using the sun so if the day if you know you're in the middle of the day great but what if you're trying to navigate at night well if you look up and it's a crescent moon which is a fairly large proportion of the month you can figure out how to go south or north so the next time you see a moon draw a line that joins the two points together in a tangent and extend that line all the way until it touches the horizon so just take your finger and draw a line that goes straight through both the points and comes down to the ground. In the northern parts of the world, so anything above the equator, when you're looking at the bottom so of that the horizon line, is what you're saying. you will be facing in a okay. roughly south direction. And the reason that works is because the sun and the moon rise in the east and set mm-hmm. in the west, broadly speaking. They're moving in an east-west direction, you know, like our planes, which means that when they're not in the same part of the sky, what we call a new moon, they're either east or west of each other. So we know the moon doesn't have any light of its own. So when you see the bright side of the moon, what it's effectively doing is pointing at the sun. So when you join the dots, what you're saying is that it has to be pointing east or west. So if you draw that line, you know it's 90 degrees to an east-west line, so it has to be a north-south line. So it's a little bit of math, and it's a little bit of science, 
But if you can find the moon at night and it's a crescent moon, out of curiosity, does it make a difference if the moon is waxing or waning when it's crescent? You can find east or west. Interestingly, no, it doesn't. And that's why it's a good navigational tip. Another one, and now this one's going to be a little bit less helpful for navigating, but I still think it's a neat trick. Bird watching can help you predict the weather. And I don't mean (laughs) by like, oh, look, it's a a tornado today. You know, cockle jay or whatever the hell bird names are called. Well, actually, that one you might be able to tell, but not because of the kind of bird. The next time you're walking through a city or the countryside, either way, look, keep an eye out for groupings of birds that are perched on high, whether they're on power lines, on a roof, on, you know, statues. If you notice that all the birds are mostly facing one direction, there's a pretty strong chance the direction they're facing is into the wind. That's because since birds take off into the wind, it's like they're always kind of little planes on the runway. So they want to be, it's the most sensible direction for a bird to be facing. So if they're all facing the same direction, they're facing into the wind. Into the wind. Does if that they're mean facing that the wind different directions, into I don't their know, face? maybe they just have ADD. They're angry huh, birds. That seems counterintuitive. I feel like that would be harder for them to, No. Yes. To take off? No, because what they need is that wind underneath their wings, just like that Whitney Houston song. Do you ever know that you're my hero? You're everything I wish I could be. Try checking in with groups of birds in your location regularly, say like a couple times a day. And if you suddenly notice that they all are facing a different way than normal, that tells you the direction of the wind is changing. And a significant change in wind direction is an indicator that the weather is about to change. That's how you get those cold fronts, warm fronts, storms rolling in. So if all the birds that you're used to looking at for the weather suddenly uh, start facing now, a different direction, one thing I had to wonder the wind is, is changing how, um, and very likely the weather How quickly do the birds well. adjust to shifts in the wind? Like if the wind starts to change, will they automatically just turn over right away or will it just take some time? I don't know. Well, it it doesn't happen. It's not like there's a slight shift in the wind and all of a sudden they'll all turn like Hitchcock's the birds. But it will happen in a short enough time period that if you're standing (laughs) there watching them for like 15, 20 minutes, which granted is a very long time to stare at birds, uh, you will notice it. Or if there are very abrupt changes Mm, in the wind, you can at least tell the direction it's changing by looking before they all take off. Those are a couple different navigational tips and tricks. Now, I picked those up from a fantastic book. Uh, Tristan Gooley is an expert of natural navigation. So he wrote a book called The Natural Navigator, The Rediscovered Art of Letting Nature Be Your Guide. And that's got a, you know some of those tips that we discussed today, as well as a whole host of others. Mm. And it is fantastic to pick outdoors. up, especially for those of you so like the who consider yourselves outdoors people. So that's kind of all my my travel tips. And as always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. You can reach us on Facebook, on Squarespace, on Twitter, on Patreon, anywhere podcasts are downloaded. We'd love to hear your reviews, your ratings, and we would love for you to support us spiritually, emotionally, and financially. Included in the show notes are a whole bunch of places you can do that. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me. (laughs) Me help. With a lot of help from all my co-hosts and those of you who submit stories. Thank you very much. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys.
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.